You're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Rob. Uh, my wife, Linda, and I are uh, members of the church now. And the Bible passage we're reading this morning is from Titus. It's chapter 3. If you'd like to find that, if you have a Bible or on your phone or whichever way you look at it. This is from Paul's letter to Titus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful, they are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Thank you, Rob. Don't you just love Rob's voice? <laughs> it's outstanding. I might commission you to read me bedtime stories, Rob. I also spilt some water on me just before I came over. <laughs> I, didn't want you, I had to bring it up because I didn't want you to think that I've just dribbled. What a disaster. <laughs> well, good morning. It is so good to be here with you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the staff team here. And uh, pri- I have the privilege of sharing a message on God's Word this morning. Before I do, a couple of things to say. As Rach shared, um, don't forget, next Sunday morning... We're not gathering like this. It's the summer fun day. Put your hand if you're excited about that. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. Now, 
there are no more evening service as of next week, um, but the week after which is the 3rd of July. Um, we want to encourage you to do your very best to be here. Um, we've got some exciting and important notices and announcements and communication to share with you as the church with regards to the next season of our church life, um, focusing on our home groups and multiplication. Lots of exciting things to share. It's going to be huge, essentially, and we're excited. Um, I hope I've not oversold it, but it's going to be life-changing. So anyway, um, I'd love to share a story to kick things off this morning. Um, about a month ago, a text came in to our staff WhatsApp group, and it came in about 6 p.m. on a Monday night from a dear lady in our church called Terry, who said this, please ask the church to pray for Evie, my great-granddaughter. A stick was thrown at her at school and it went into her eye. She's in total distress. We've been told that Evie will go blind quite quickly. Please pray that God would not let this happen and fully restore her sight. So of course we are praying and um, that evening, Monday night, is our weekly prayer meeting. Now what we had done earlier, a few of us had planned that prayer meeting for the Monday night and um, I felt like the Lord give me this verse from Psalm 146, and this happened kind of mid-morning, I prepared the prayer meeting. Uh, Psalm 146, the passage we were reading that night says, has this verse, the Lord gives sight to the blind. And then at 6 p.m. that evening, we hear this news about Evie, so we begin to pray. I love how God just wants to remind us who he is and remind us what he's capable of. The Lord gives sight to the blind. So that evening, the prayer, the meeting gathered together and prayed for Evie, among many other things, and we've been praying since. And this is the text message we got this week. Evie has had her consultant appointment today, and he couldn't believe that after her eye had suffered such trauma, her vision does not seem to have been affected at all. He described it as a miracle. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? They'd been warned to expect significant sight loss, and they're full of faith that she'll be fully healed. So we're going to keep praying, but um, isn't that absolutely stunning? So we're coming into land now on our series on Titus. For the last three weeks, we've been unpacking this brilliant book all about life and leadership. And today, I'm finishing it off with a message I have called, Just Do Good. Just Do Good. I wonder, as Rob read the passage so deeply and beautifully, um, whether you noticed a bit of a theme running through the chapter. I wonder if you noticed some repetition in Paul's language. Three times Paul exhorts Titus and the churches in Crete. Three times he commands and encourages the church to do good. Verse 1, be ready to do good. Verse 8, Devote yourselves to doing what is good. Verse 14, learn to devote yourself to doing what is good. Once at the start, once in the middle, once at the end. It's almost like Paul is trying to tell us something. And here is the main message, the main theme that I want to share about Titus 3 is that there is a mandate on the church to do good in the city for the sake of the city. There is a mandate on the church, on every single one of us, to be people that do good. Wherever we're planted, wherever we live, wherever we find ourselves day by day amongst our neighbors, at the school gates, on your good days and on your tired days, 
whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're a teacher or a doctor or don't have a job, God has got a destiny for your life. He's got a plan and a purpose. And he has marked you with the capacity to bring renewal in our city through how we live and what we do. Right now, we are in a cultural moment marked by significant brokenness and breakdown. People's lives are unraveling mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially. We're living in a time of great turmoil and unrest, great confusion, conflict, crisis. And in the midst of all this, Jesus is on the move. He gave a promise in in Revelation 21 that I am making all things new. And how many of you know that Jesus is still about his business of renewing all things here today, even in the midst of all that? He is making all things new. And church, isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we are deeply desiring to see our city encountering Jesus and come alive, experience abundant life. Isn't that what we are here for? Aren't we desperate to see Hull transformed and and Hull invaded by heaven? Don't we long to see addictions broken and those that are demonized delivered and marriages restored and businesses flourishing and loneliness ended and the lost come home and the sick healed? Don't we long to see that? We long to see a great awakening to partner with God. The Great Commission is a co-mission. We were born for partnership. And that's what I want to talk about today. Seeing a Great Awakening, I think, is a lot simpler and actually a lot closer than we imagine. In fact, it's so simple and so available that most of the time we don't see it. Changing the world most of the time looks like just doing good. Let's unpack the passage. I want to give you three reasons why I think we should be people that do good in our time. Titus 3. So, verse 1 says this. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. My first reason that I think we should be people that do good is that doing good is our witness in the world. Doing good is how we represent Jesus well to our neighbors and friends and work colleagues and family. Doing good is how we serve our city. And what Paul is saying in these verses is that we change the world not by rebellion or or rage or ranting on social media, but instead by doing good. Christians, followers of Jesus, should be marked by a goodness which is displayed publicly in the world, that people look at your life and say there's something different about you in how we relate to people, in how we relate to the rulers over us, Paul says, and the relationships around us. This should be saturated by doing good. But how many of you know it's challenging at times to do good when you disagree with the people above you? (laughs) I got an, an amen. Or you dislike the people around you. Be honest, is there anyone you dislike in the world? Because there'll be people that dislike you. (laughs) We would never. We would all, yeah, it's challenging. But this is all the more reason why we need to be marked by goodness. Because it sets us apart from how everyone else in the world. When we disagree with people above us and dislike people around us, what sets the church apart is when we step into that space and still be committed to doing good and loving people 
and loving those that uh, are our enemies, as Jesus put it. This is the way of Jesus. In every day, in every way, followers of Jesus are to do good. In every interaction, in every conversation, seeking an opportunity to do good. Now, too many Christians, I, I believe, I wonder, spend their lives shouting at the problem instead of being part of the solution, playing the blame game, standing at a distance and complaining about a situation. But as a church, we're called to interrupt the brokenness of the world and reverse the decay in small and often unseen ways doing good, in huge, citywide, systemic ways doing good. Paul says this in Romans uh, 12, I think, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In a world filled with atrocities and war and evil, it's easy to be tempted as the church away from culture to retreat or, or get revenge against culture or become apathetic or unhealthily angry. But what if the solution began by followers of Jesus in hundreds and hundreds of homes all across our city being devoted to doing good? Doing good actually is resistance against the attacks of the enemy. Doing good is warfare. What if we woke up every morning and asked for opportunities to do good in our city? I love that the verse says, be ready to do good. Like Christians should be always on the edge of their seat, ready to step into a moment and bring the hope and the love of Jesus. And it can look in really ordinary things, simply baking cakes for those at work or, or speaking to someone who you know is desperately lonely. Um, or, or neighbors, our next door neighbors, they're, they're, they're living flats and the garden is monstrously overgrown, like 10 foot high plants and trees. And it's like a, a, a young 20 something girl that lives there. She can't do it, it's quite a big garden. And so I just, I said to her, I mean, it blocks our lives, so it was a bit selfish. But I said, hey, <laughs> look, I'm free on Saturday morning. Uh, we've got nothing on. Do you need a hand with your garden? And she didn't have any tools. And she was just like, that would be incredible. And we jumped over the fence. And um, it, I mean, it looks worse now, but I promised her, <laughs> I promised her it will look better. So we do good because it's our witness in the world. And when we do good, people will look at us, watch us, notice something different about us. Secondly, we do good because it's the overflow of the gospel. Now, you're ready for a bit of a Bible study. I've been excited about this a little bit all week. We're going to read verse 3 and onwards. This is one of the most spectacular sentences, in my opinion, in the Bible. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that we have been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Isn't that good? Are you excited about that? This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And you can see clearly here in these verses that being a Christian, being saved, 
And doing good in the city is inseparable, completely inseparable. Now, John Stott, the famous brilliant theologian, he said that this sentence, verse 3 to 7, one flowing sentence, is perhaps the fullest statement of salvation in the entire New Testament. Here we have really the gospel, what it means to be saved, and we find it right at the center of a chapter on doing good in the city. So it's vital to understand salvation if we want to do good. How many of you know that there are lots of great organizations in our city that do lots of really good stuff? probably do a bit more than we do, or have bigger buildings or bigger budgets. There's something that sets the church apart that we have to be marked by, and it's the gospel. When the gospel's at the center of what we do, everything we do will have a greater gravitas and power and favor upon it. So in these verses, we discover six truths about salvation. If you're making notes, write these down. Number one, the need for salvation the source of salvation, the foundation of salvation, the means of salvation, the goal of salvation, and the fruit of salvation in one sentence. I'm going to unpack these for a moment. Firstly, the need for salvation. Paul says this, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is a picture of a life without God, a life centered around self, a life living to please myself, living to fulfill my inner desires and cravings to do what I want, when I want. This is the life that actually is celebrated in the world, and yet Paul teaches us that in fact it leads to slavery. I experienced um, seeing someone who was enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures recently when I went to center parks with my 18-month-old daughter, Ivy. If you think children are born saved, you should come and meet mine. <laughs> Cut that from the recording. <laughs> Hannah's in the kids' team this morning. Oh, man, it was so funny. We were, we were, we were at Centre Parks. That's where we all caught COVID with things. It was an absolute nightmare. But we had an amazing time. The swimming pool is exceptional. And we were taking Ivy on the nice, relaxing things and, um, you know, the tiny little slides. And then we decided to take her on the blue flume. So it's pretty, it's pretty energetic, the adults that go on there. We took Ivy on one of us. And when, when she went on it once, man, it was like, it was like a red rag to a bull. It was like her desire, her, her, her old man came out, and um, we didn't stand a chance. We must have, she, she must have frog-marched us back to that flume 30, 40 times. Any sense that we were going to, she wouldn't even trust us to carry her, because she thought we might take her somewhere else. She was addicted. I honestly thought, I failed. She's now on the, the spiral of uh, sin and hedonism and pleasure, and uh, she's, she's enslaved to self um, she's enslaved to self. <laughs> so, yeah, if anyone's got any tips, she's still there. <laughs> we had to leave her. No. Point is this. We all need saving. We all need saving. To minimize the problem of humanity is to minimize what Jesus did to make it right. So that we have the need of salvation, then the source of salvation. Now, every person on earth, I think every religion on the world would agree that there's something wrong with us. You just turn on the TV. The question is, what is it and how do we fix it? Now, our culture today would try and persuade you that the source of salvation is yourself. 
Look inside. Try harder. Read another self-help book. The actress Shirley MacLaine sums it up well. Explore yourself, for all the answers are within yourself. That's true. I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm gone, because I've got very little answers inside myself. Most of the time in my head, it's just a music soundtrack. If there was like a cartoon bubble, there'd be nothing in it. But the Bible teaches another way. This is what Paul says. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us. We don't save ourselves. Salvation, he is the source. It comes from him. It's on his heart for our city to save people. It's on his heart to bring hope to the hopeless and redeem people. It's his kindness and it's his love that is the source of salvation and that is such good news. He is the source. Thirdly, the ground of salvation, what is it built on? Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. It's built on his mercy. Be honest if you think that's good news. Not because of the righteous things we have done. Doing good things for God does not get you any brownie points. I know that sounds counterintuitive when I'm doing a talk on doing good. But doing good contributes nothing to your salvation. It doesn't contribute anything to how God feels about you or your identity. Too many followers of Jesus, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, have made doing things for God the main thing. Like we hinge our lives on it. We hang our identities on it. We place our significance in it. And we expect that because we do good things for God, he now has to bless us. Like he owes us. And then if our life doesn't work out the way we want it to, if we have marriage struggles or, or financial difficulties, or, or we're like, God, how could this happen? Don't you see all that I do for you? And we've subtly moved into a faith based on works. There is nothing we can do to earn God's affection. There is nothing we can do to earn God's blessing. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Grace is entirely unmerited. It is scandalous. It is ridiculous. It is unearned. It is lavish. It is relentless. And if you're here today and you, you, you've been saved by Jesus, you did nothing to deserve that. You didn't walk enough old ladies across the road to make it into heaven. It's not a golden ticket. And this is what sets faith in Jesus apart. God says there's no way you could get up the ladder of success. You can't do it. It's impossible. We all need saving. So he came down into our mess. It's his mercy, his compassion, his love, his grace. It's all about Jesus. Fourthly, the means of salvation. So we've done the, the need, the source, the ground, then the means. How does it work? Well, Paul says this. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Underline renewal and rebirth, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. Salvation is not a golden ticket into heaven. It is a rebirth. It is a renewal. It is a recreation. It is a death to the old and a completely new beginning. Salvation is a work of the Spirit who makes us new creatures who are justified. Uh, that means made right with God. This is a radical new beginning and a new status. Fifthly, the goal of salvation. What's the goal? Paul says that we might become heirs, heirs, having hope of eternal life. You are an heir. You are an heir of the kingdom. You are a co-heir with Christ. 
There is a new identity that's been placed on you as a new creature if you follow Jesus. And we're now called to be heirs, heirs in the coming kingdom with the resources of heaven at our disposal to share in his authority. So as we do good, as we step into our workplaces or, or just bump into someone on the street, if we recognize that the identity we carry is now a son, a daughter, a co-heir with Christ, with that authority, it changes everything. We begin to think and behave in such a way that a royal ambassador would behave. And opportunities become available and take a whole new level. And then finally, the fruit of salvation. The fruit of salvation. This is a trustworthy saying, Paul says. And I want you to stress these things. And I hope I'm stressing them. I'm not stressed about them, but I'm stressing them. This is so important. This is huge. Why? So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Here we come back to doing good. If we understand the gospel properly, it will propel us out into the world. If we understand what God has done for us, then we have to go and take that good news and good works to our city in serving and loving people and washing the feet of the broken. We cannot keep it to ourselves. So if we follow Jesus, doing good has to be an inherent part of our lives. Our job is to do good, to share our faith, to love our neighbor, to live incarnationally, to carry the power and the presence of Jesus, to sow seeds of good deeds in our city. I love this quote from William A. Ward, who said this, judge each day, not by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds you plant. It's good. Finally, my third point is this, we do good simply because it's worship. Doing good is our worship. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands. We're called to be a people that do good. Do good even when it's unseen. Even when it looks like it makes no impact at all. Church, doing good things can get tiring. We start off with great intentions and we get pumped about the new project at church, the the bags of hope that we launched, and then all of a sudden doing good becomes tiring. Often doing good attracts opposition. And you're like, why does that happen? Well, it, it just does. Doing good sometimes can be discouraging, and doing good is certainly costly. We don't do it because it's the, the fast track to an easy life of blessing. We do it because it's worship. Galatians 6 verse 9 says this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. In order to do well, in order to sow seeds consistently and constantly and see a harvest reaped in our city, in our time, I believe we have to be people who don't give up. I believe we have to be a people who break our addiction to the immediate. An addiction to the immediate is one of the curses of our age. We've been conditioned to believe that everything we want comes quickly, is created quickly, matures quickly, and bears fruit quickly. And yet most of the time, as followers of Jesus, the things we do don't have an immediate impact, aren't immediately noticed, and isn't immediately appreciated. We do it because it's worship. 
John Tyson is a pastor in the States, and he writes a blog, like an email that gets sent out around the theme of fatherhood and how to raise kids well, and I, I subscribe to it. And his latest blog was entitled, Don't Measure the Harvest, Measure the Seeds. And this is about fatherhood, which is apt considering today is Father's Day, but actually I think we can apply it to every single follower of Jesus. And this is what he says. The kingdom of God comes in seed form, not realized form. It's the slow daily death of self, words of kindness, observation and attention, loving confrontation, and a commitment to present over the years. But it all starts by sowing seeds today, seeds that will bear fruit in decades to come. Sow seeds of encouragement instead of criticism. Sow seeds of attention. Put your phone down. Sow seeds of morality. Model integrity in the small things. Sow seeds of discipline. Let your kids see you restrain yourselves. Sow seeds of courage. Confront things they know you hate. Sow seeds of servanthood. Do the overlooked stuff without fanfare. Sow seeds of a godly marriage. Be affectionate with your wife in front of the kids. These may not seem like much, that these seeds can reforest the desert of a family's soul if done with persistence and intention. I think that's good. It's really powerful. Church, if we want to see the fruit of our salvation, leaving a legacy in the world and beyond, I want to submit to us today that we need to make it a non-negotiable in our life to just do good, to serve our city, to be ready, to be devoted, to be available, to take opportunities sharing the heart of Jesus with people around us. You have been planted in this city for such a time as this. You have been, if you follow Jesus, you have been saved radically. Wildly, you are a new creation. The spirit, same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so you carry his presence and authority. And so recognizing that, may we be a church that begins to see a harvest reaped. May we be a church that is inconvenienced for the sake of the city. May we be a church that look for opportunities to give and serve and love, to go above and beyond in generosity. And I believe if we commit to devoting ourselves to good, as Titus 3 says, day by day, year by year, I believe the spiritual desert that surrounds us will become reforested once again. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hall Vineyard Podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.